I'm pleased to introduce Mr. Edward Miguel. Uh, he is an Associate Professor of Economics and Director of the Center of Evaluation for Global Action at the University of California, Berkeley, where he has taught since 2000. Raised in New Jersey, he earned degrees in both economics and mathematics from MIT and received a PhD in economics from Harvard University, where he was a National Science Foundation Fellow. Ted's main research focus is African economic development, including work on the economic causes and consequence of violence, the impact of ethnic divisions on local collective action, and interactions between health, education, and productivity for the poor. He has conducted fieldwork in Kenya, Sierra Leone, Tanzania, and India. Ted is a faculty research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, associate editor for the Quarterly Journal of Economics, Journal of Development Economics, and Review of Economics and Statistics. He also is the recipient of the 2005 Alfred P. Lone Fellowship. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Edward Miguel. Thanks very much. I'm really honored to be here. Uh, it's a beautiful institute here, the Goethe Institute. Um, I'm an economics professor at UC Berkeley, and my co-author, Ray Fisman, is an economist at Columbia uh, in New York. We set out to write a book that uh, brings forth new ideas on issues at the core of global uh, development today, economic development today. And those are issues of corruption and violence. The book, Economic Gangsters, builds on our own research as well as the insights of other economists. The stories we tell in the book are based on our own fieldwork in many different less developed countries, from remote villages in East, in East Africa to the booming stock exchanges of Southeast Asia. And as we wandered the back roads of a lot of different poor countries, we were constantly struck with the same question. Why are some countries doing so well economically and others failing. What we've seen over the past few decades are a number of uh, poor countries, mainly in East Asia, have in a few years, in a generation, leapfrogged to prosperity, while many other poor countries in South Asia, in Central America, and in Sub-Saharan Africa have remained desperately poor. Their citizens, on average, are no richer today, in many cases, than they were decades ago. Just for some numbers, we still live in, in a world where half the population uh, survives on less than $2 a day. In the world's poorest countries, a child born today has a better chance of dying before age one than they do of graduating from high school. That's still the world we live in today. The country where I've worked the most is Kenya in East Africa, and it's an example of this sort of disappointment with economic development over the past few decades. Since independence in the 60s, Kenya has been really an economic failure. People are no richer today than they were at independence. The proportion of roads that are paved is no different than it was decades ago. And as you think about why Kenya went wrong, you're constantly struck with the role of corruption and violence. Kenya is a country that suffered from coups, ethnic violence and ethnic rivalry, mass government corruption and um, scandals where huge amounts of money were stolen we set out in this book to try to understand these phenomena of corruption and violence and their perpetrators, the people we call economic gangsters. Unfortunately, Kenya is not alone. In many countries around the world, economic gangsters run the show or are very influential. So who are these economic gangsters we talk about 
in the book. They come in many shapes and sizes. They come in the form of rebel warlords in Africa who steal and smuggle diamonds to fund their militia groups, plunging their countries into chaos. They come in the form of Asian dictators who build up networks of crony capitalism to enrich themselves and their families. <clears throat> One thing we can do, though, is use the tools of economics to try to understand their behavior. While rebel warlords and Asian dictators are corrupt and violent, they very often uh, behave in ways that are amenable to economic analysis. They're very cunning. They're very calculating. They weigh costs and benefits. And it's that aspect of their behavior that allows us to study them, to try to understand them, understand their motives, and ultimately try to come up with prescriptions for fighting economic gangsters. In US history, an example of an economic gangster could be somebody like Al Capone. We know Al Capone as the head of the mob in Chicago in the 1930s. He became very wealthy selling alcohol during prohibition. What people don't know about Al Capone is he actually started his career as an accountant for a construction firm. He knew about costs and benefits very well, and he was a very cunning businessman. It just happened he was in a line of work where business disputes were settled with machine guns rather than lawyers in the 1930s. Um, but he was a very shrewd businessman nonetheless. Now imagine something. Imagine what life in LA would be like under Mayor Al Capone, or what life in the US would be like under President Al Capone, someone who's so amoral, an economic gangster. Well, unfortunately, everybody's laughing. That's right. There's an election next week, and uh, we've had an interesting last uh, few years in this country. Um, well, it's a terrifying thought uh, to have economic gangsters in power, whether it's hypothetical or not, in your view. Uh, and for many people in less developed countries, it's not something they have to imagine or hypothesize about. The economic gangsters are very well entrenched in power. In addition to being intellectually interesting, understanding corruption and violence, these core issues in economic development, understanding economic gangsters is central to making progress on international economic development policy and foreign aid policy today. Development policy is divided right now. There are debates about the right, the better design of foreign aid, and it's a debate that's polarized right now. When uh, we think about foreign aid debates today, there are at least two major camps. There's a camp that argues we need to greatly ramp up the amount of foreign aid that's given to poor countries. The idea in that uh, way of thinking is poor countries are so poor, they're caught in a poverty trap. They're so poor, they can't save for themselves. They can't invest for themselves. They can't invest in the schools and the roads that will allow them to boost their productivity and become wealthier in the future. So what foreign aid should do in that view is allow them to make those investments. Poor countries should receive a large infusion of foreign aid to pull them out of this poverty trap, even if temporarily, get them up to an income level where they can invest on their own and grow on their own. That's one camp. Critics counter, well, we've already given trillions of dollars in foreign aid to poor countries over the past few decades. And all too often, there's little to show for it. A lot of those billions and billions of dollars in foreign aid ended up stolen. They ended up in Swiss bank accounts. A lot of the fruits of foreign aid ended up being destroyed in violence, in political violence, in civil war, those roads and schools uh, that were built and subsequently destroyed. In other words, critics to uh, the pro-foreign aid camp claim that economic gangsters have too often gotten in the way. And if we really want to understand how best to design foreign aid policy, whether we should increase foreign aid or not, how we should disperse it, we have to understand the role that economic gangsters are playing in poor countries. It's absolutely essential.
And that's our goal in this book. Our goal is to understand corruption and violence and its perpetrators, understand the motivations of economic gangsters, and think about ways of fighting them. Now, as researchers, we face a number of challenges in achieving this goal. The first challenge is a challenge of data. Measuring corruption and violence is actually very hard. Imagine measuring bribery. If the person giving a bribe and the person receiving a bribe are doing a halfway decent job, you're never going to see that bribe recorded in a balance sheet or in a tax return or in any sort of official statistic. They'd have to be idiots, right? Corruption is hard to measure. What we do in the book is develop forensic techniques to look for the fingerprints left behind by corruption. You might think measuring violence would be a little bit easier. Unfortunately, in a civil war, there are a lot of body bags to count. That, that would give us a sense of the extent of violence. But no, actually measuring violence is also hard. War zones are data black holes. Statistical agencies shut down. There's no census conducted. And even something as basic as the number of casualties is hard to measure. Very often, the only data we get are from the fighting sides themselves, essentially propaganda. Data is a problem. We spend time in the book trying to solve this problem and come up with new techniques for measuring corruption and violence, these key factors in economic development. But that's only the first problem. There's a second problem we deal with in the book, and that's what we call the chicken and egg problem of causality. You know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, when we look at different countries in the world, it's clear that poor countries have more violence than rich countries, and poor countries are more corrupt than rich countries. But what came first? The poverty? Is the poverty what is causing the corruption and violence? Or are the corruption and violence what are leading to greater poverty? Understanding cause and effect will be essential in designing better policies and resolving the foreign aid debate I talked about before. We come up with ways of solving these chicken and egg problems in the book through a number of different stories. What I want to do first is share one of the stories with you. Imagine you're in Bogota, Colombia, circa 1993. Bogota was the murder capital of the world at that time. There were more than 4,000 murders a year. A tremendous number, just an order of magnitude difference um, than LA or San Francisco or New York. Kidnappings were commonplace. And there was a general sense of disorder. Uh, everything from everything as petty as people running red lights and not obeying the rules, uh, all the way up to murder. Uh, lawlessness, criminality were widespread. In part, this was the legacy of the drug wars of the 1980s. The population of Bogota in the early 90s was just fed up. The traditional political parties had failed them. They were looking for new answers. And in their desperation, they elected someone who called himself an anti-politician. He was a man who was actually a professor of philosophy and mathematics at the local university, Professor Antanas Mokas. Mokas came to power promising something new in Bogota. He took over this sprawling capital city, really with no political experience, promising changes. What was the first thing he did to try to change the amount of corruption and crime and lawlessness in the city? Well, the first thing he did is he stationed an army of 400 mimes on the busiest intersections in downtown Bogota, people wearing face paint and sometimes wearing tights as well. They weren't armed with guns, these mimes. They were students from the local theater school. No guns. All they were armed with were red cards, which they would flash soccer style at jaywalkers downtown, which they would flash soccer style at cars that ran red lights. All of a sudden, by all accounts, people thought twice about jaywalking and running red lights in downtown Bogota. Nobody wants to be embarrassed or humiliated uh, in public. Now, the showmanship of this 
uh, mime, traffic mime intervention was, was unprecedented. But MOCUS combined that sort of showmanship with more traditional law enforcement reforms. He instituted a gun buyback program to try to get guns out of the hands of criminals. There were mass firings of corrupt traffic cops who were always taking bribes. And he did some unorthodox things as well. He uh, built large public art installations in the poorest shanty towns of Bogota in an attempt to build civic pride in those neighborhoods. What happened in Bogota was nothing short of a miracle. Within a decade, when Mocha stepped down in 2004 from a second term as mayor, the murder rate had fallen 70%. The rate of other crimes had fallen similarly. Bogota was pointed to as a model city in Latin America. People spoke about the Renaissance in Bogota. People were proud of their city all of a sudden. Now, Mokas himself, when asked why he was successful, always pointed to the cultural reforms, the reforms like the mimes, that tried to break the culture of lawbreaking and criminality in the country. He said none of his other reforms would have worked if he hadn't tackled culture first. This is a really important issue. In a lot of countries, not just in Colombia, there's an attempt right now to root out crime, to reduce corruption and rule breaking among government officials. The World Bank, for instance, is putting lots of money into what they call governance reforms, trying to reduce corruption. But what should they do? Should they put the money in traditional law enforcement reforms or should they put their scarce resources into these cultural type reforms? It's a very important issue and it's one where we still need more answers because we don't know for sure which of these two factors is most important. Think about trying to disentangle the role, of, the role of law enforcement and the role of culture by looking at different countries. So let's take two polar cases, two extreme cases. On the one hand, consider a country like Nigeria. According to all the corruption perception surveys, Nigeria is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. The police are always on the take, judges can be bribed, and Nigerians complain about a culture of corruption and lawlessness that's permeated all spheres of life. Contrast Nigeria to Norway. Norway has a super efficient police force, a very good court system, and also a strong set of social norms that stress following the rules, being law abiding and rule abiding. When we try to understand why Nigeria is corrupt and Norway isn't, what's the cause? Is it the super efficient police force in Norway or is it the cultural norms? It's a very tricky issue. There's a lot of things that differ between these two settings. Now, putting on our researcher hats, my co-author and I asked ourselves the question, what would be the ideal situation, the ideal experiment, we would call it, for trying to resolve that issue of what the causes of corruption are? Well, if we could des design our ideal experiment, what we'd do is we'd take government officials from all around the world, bring them together in one place, let them carry out their official duties, deciding whether or not to be corrupt, and we would do so in an environment with no law enforcement, where there was no chance they would get caught for breaking the rules or being corrupt. It's a sort of anarchist fantasy land that would be the ideal experiment and sounds kind of impossible to attain. But actually, it's a remarkably close approximation for what prevailed on the streets of New York City around the United Nations um, over the past few decades. Government officials, diplomats from all over the world converge on the United Nations. Countries staff their missions with dozens of officials. And these officials, as diplomats, have diplomatic immunity. They can break the rules uh, without any sort of punishment. And something that diplomats, these thousands of international diplomats in, in New York City are very well known for, is unpaid parking violations. <laughs> Un an unpaid parking violation is actually a pretty good approximation 
for the definition of corruption, the official definition of corruption that Transparency International uses is something like the abuse of public office for private gain. Well, if you're a diplomat and you have diplomatic immunity and you choose to double park on a crowded street, overstay your meter, park in front of a driveway, that's abusing your official position for your own private gain. What we can do then is compare how many parking tickets diplomats get from different countries, Norway and Nigeria. There's no chance you're going to get caught. You're not going to get busted by the Norwegian police in New York City. And we can see what the constraints of culture and conscience alone do to prevent corruption. So the first thing you should know about parking tickets in New York City is that diplomats get a whole lot of parking tickets. These few thousand international diplomats uh, you know, staffing the UN missions, these few thousand folks, in 1996, the first year of our data, got 160,000 unpaid parking tickets. This is worth millions and millions of dollars to the city of New York. You may wonder how we got the data on parking tickets. Let me just assure you, the Department of Finance of the city of New York was very eager to share this data with us. <laughs> they wanted to get the word out. They want their money back. Um, but there are big differences uh, between different diplomats. So just to give you an example of how bad it can get, the person we in the book award the Lifetime Achievement Award in parking tickets to is a diplomat from Kuwait. We call him Ambassador X, so as to not um, embarrass him publicly. He came to New York in 1999. He started off slowly. He only got 249 unpaid parking tickets in 1999. 2000 was really a banner year. 526 unpaid parking tickets that year. That's more than two unpaid tickets every single workday all year. 2001 was a little bit of a slow year for him, only 351 unpaid parking tickets. Now, his parking tickets came in all shapes and sizes. There were overstayed meters. There was parking in loading zones. There was double parking. One thing that's also interesting is the geography of his violations. There were a lot near the UN Plaza where he worked, where the Kuwaiti mission was. But there were also a lot of violations in Greenwich Village, on the Upper West Side, places far away from the UN Plaza, but which have some of New York City's finest whining and dining. Uh, so that tells us something about what Ambassador X was doing, uh, I guess, with his spare time. Unfortunately for New Yorkers, Ambassador X was not alone. There are 17 countries in all whose diplomats over, over this period, we have data for 96 to 2005, 17 countries whose diplomats averaged at least 50 unpaid parking tickets per year. So that's a lot of, of tickets. This is the list. Kuwait came in first, led by Ambassador X. Egypt, Chad, Sudan, Bulgaria, Mozambique, Albania, Angola, Senegal, Pakistan, Ivory Coast, Zambia, Morocco, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Syria. So these countries come from all over. There's some Eastern European countries, some Middle Eastern countries, some African countries. But what unites them is most of these countries on the corruption perception surveys are actually quite corrupt countries. In contrast, the list of countries with exactly zero unpaid parking tickets over this time period are Australia, Canada, Colombia, so maybe Mocus is doing something good, um, Denmark, Ecuador, Greece, Ireland, Israel, Jamaica, Japan, Netherlands, Norway, Panama, Sweden, Turkey, and the UK. So again, a mixture of countries from different regions, but a lot of these countries are very low corruption countries. And actually, if we look across all countries in the world, pretty much everybody has a UN mission, this pattern comes through very 
strongly. Diplomats from countries that are very corrupt commit a lot of unpaid, commit a lot of parking violations in New York. Diplomats from un less corrupt countries have a lot fewer unpaid parking tickets. What does it mean? Well, this means that cultures of corruption matter, and they're persistent. You can take a diplomat halfway around the world from his home country to New York, station him there for years, and years later, he's still behaving a lot like government officials back home. So it looks like Mayor Mokas of Bogota was right. It looks like cultures of corruption matter. There's differences across the cultures in different government institutions across countries that, that really matter. And if we're going to tackle corruption effectively, we have to understand that culture matters. Something that we're asked a lot is, what about the US? What about US diplomats? Do they get a lot of parking tickets? Well, this doesn't apply to US diplomats in New York because it's not a foreign country. So U US mission diplomats to the United Nations don't have diplomatic immunity. One thing that we can do is look at US diplomats abroad. So one particular case that's interesting and an interesting illustration is the case of US diplomats in London. So some of you may be aware that, I think it was four or five years ago, London instituted a congestion charge system. In other words, if you drove into the central business district of London, you had to pay a pretty heavy toll. And the goal there was to raise revenue and also reduce uh, congestion in the central business district, encourage people to use public transit. Now, if you look at the list of countries that refuse to pay those tolls in London, that list looks really similar to the list of countries that don't pay their parking tickets in New York City. It's actually remarkably similar, with one glaring exception, the United States. The United States is the top violator in London. We're the country that has the most unpaid congestion charges. And the rationale, according to US diplomats in London, was that it would set a bad precedent if diplomats were taxed. Uh, but it's clearly been a pretty bad black eye for us uh, abroad. It may seem a little bit strange for you to see me here, an economist talking a lot about culture. Economists usually talk about economic incentives and costs and benefits and those sorts of issues and less about culture. But I've also studied an issue, a different issue, where culture uh, might also seem to be incredibly important. And that's the issue of witchcraft and witch killing. Uh, witchcraft and witch killing sounds like something from long ago here in the United States, but unfortunately, Witchcraft beliefs are alive, alive and well around the world, and witch killings are as well. So I've studied this issue in western Tanzania. And in the district where I worked in Tanzania, half of all murders were murders of people accused of being witches. It's an incredibly important type of violent crime, <coughs> violent crime in that setting. It might seem that witchcraft and witch killing is something where economics would have nothing to say, where where culture and superstition and psychology would uh, really be all that could help us understand what's going on. But in my field work in Tanzania, it turns out that that is wrong. Economic factors actually can tell us a lot about witch killing. Let me tell you a little bit more about these attacks. We collected data in 70 villages over the course of 10 years on these attacks. And some patterns come out. The first pattern that comes out are the victims and the victimizers. So first of all, almost all the victims are elderly women. That comes through very strongly. Perhaps even more surprisingly is the fact that the victimizers, those who attack these elderly women and hack them to death with machetes, are almost always their own relatives, their own kin, uh, members of their extended families. In fact, a famous 
anthropologist who works on Africa calls witchcraft in Africa the dark side of kinship because witch, witchcraft accusations and witch attacks so often occur within families, among intimates. The first hint that economic factors may be at play in understanding these ghastly crimes is that the victims tend to come from the poorest households in our villages, the households with the least land, the households with the least, with the fewest livestock, the fewest cattle, the households that are poor. But that's not the kicker. The real kicker that comes out in the study is that the number of these witch killings skyrockets in years of desperate economic circumstance. R rural Western Tanzania is an overwhelmingly agrarian area. Almost everybody's a farmer in this area. And people live or die with the rain. When the rains are good, their crops grow. When the rains fail, when there's a drought or a flood, their crops fail and incomes can drop precipitously. And those are very desperate years. Tanzania is one of the world's poorest countries. This district is one of the poorest districts in Tanzania. We're talking about the poorest households in this area. In a drought year or a flood year where the crops fail, many of these households are on the edge of survival, on the edge of subsistence. And what we find is in a year of drought or flood, the number of witch killings nearly doubles. It's a big increase. And in fact, the murder rate among elderly women in those bad years, in those drought years, is higher than the murder rate in Bogota, Colombia in its worst year in the 1980s. It's a very high rate of witch attacks and witch killing. Why is this? Well, in those desperate years, there may simply not be enough food to go around. The question is, who gets the food? Who gets to eat the little bit of sorghum, millet, or maize that's around, and who doesn't? Who gets to live and who gets, who has to die? And in this grim lottery, too often elderly women draw the short straw. Why? There's a number of disadvantages elderly women have. First of all, they're less productive than younger folks on the farm, so they're seen as a burden to the household in those difficult years. Second, elderly women have a lot less social influence and political influence than elder, elderly men. Male elders in Tanzania have their own elder councils that are very influential politically. There's no similar institution for old women. They're much more marginalized. Third, because of local marriage traditions, when women marry, they leave their birth village and move to their husband's village. So in their old age, old men are surrounded by their kin and their cousins and their brothers. And old women are surrounded by their in-laws. And um, that doesn't work out well for them. Culture matters. By talking about these economic conditions, I'm certainly not saying culture doesn't matter. Culture matters. People in Western Tanzania really believe in witchcraft. It's alive and well. It's incredibly important to them. And when people attack an old woman as a witch, they really believe she's a witch. But what we find is economic factors matter a lot too. And in fact, the economic imperative of surviving in a year of desperate resource shortages can turn a lot of people into killers. Now, the same sort of logic, economic logic, I've talked about in relation to witch killing can also apply to broader society-wide phenomena. And the most important society-wide form of violence in poor countries today is civil war. So poor countries have about six times more civil war than rich countries. And that rate of civil war is particularly high in sub-Saharan Africa, the poorest part of the world. Since 1980, 70%, 70% of African countries have had at least one year of civil war. The majority of countries, the vast majority of African countries. Now, in the media here in the US, people will attribute 
war in Africa to tribal violence and ethnic conflict and these sort of cultural explanations. And surely that's part of the story in some cases or even many cases. But that sort of analysis ignores economic factors. And what we do is carry out a similar analysis for civil wars as we did for witch killing. We look at what happens to this violence following a drought year. It turns out, again, most of sub-Saharan Africa is overwhelmingly agrarian. When the rains fail in a drought, crops fail and incomes fall. Those are difficult, very difficult economic years. In the year following a drought, the risk of civil war in sub-Saharan Africa increases by half. So in a good rainfall year, the risk of civil war is about 20% in sub-Saharan Africa. In the year following a drought, it increases to nearly 30%. It increases very sharply. Economic factors matter a lot. One of the nice things from the research side of using rainfall to understand the link between poverty and violence is it helps us get around some of these chicken and egg problems I was talking about before. When we trace through what happens, the rains fail because of a drought, something that's not man-made. Rain falls from the sky out of the control of what's going on on the ground. The rains fail, the economy fails, and we see this effect on civil conflict. We can point through what is causing what very precisely. What can we do then, now that we're armed with this knowledge that dire economic circumstances can serve as an immediate trigger for violence, whether it's civil war or witch killing in sub-Saharan Africa? What we do in the book is we propose a new type of foreign aid mechanism. We call it Rapid Conflict Prevention Support, RCPS. Rapid Conflict Prevention Support is a foreign aid mechanism that serves as insurance for poor countries. Now, most foreign aid today is comes in the form of an investment, an investment in schools and roads that will allow countries to be more productive in the distant future and grow. What RCPS aims to do is provide insurance, a safety net, a floor under which countries' economies can't fall. So in those desperate years when the rains fail or when there's a lot of volatility in commodity prices, they don't face absolute desperation, absolutely desperate economic circumstances. And that desperation can set off political violence. So the idea is something like preventive medicine. You take the drug, you take your flu shot now so you don't get sick later. You shore up the levees before the storm so they don't burst on you later. Uh, so it could be a very cost-effective way to address these problems. There are actually programs that resemble RCPS out there already. There's a well-known program in Botswana called the Drought Relief Program. What the government of Botswana does is when a drought is coming on, and, and Botswana is quite an arid country, when a drought is coming on early in the season, the government of Botswana scales up food aid to, to rural areas. And they increase the number of uh, public works jobs for unemployed youth. The idea, again, there is to provide a safety net to make sure no one falls off the cliff into absolute desperation. It's been pretty good. This program has worked pretty well for Botswana. Botswana is one of Africa's economic stars. It hasn't had a single year of civil war since independence. It's been peaceful and prosperous, and other countries can learn from its example. One critique or comment or issue that comes up when discussing rapid conflict prevention support is, what about cases where economic gangsters run the government? Wouldn't they just misuse the aid? That may be, Botswana has a relatively uncorrupt government. That may be a case where NGOs, nonprofits, and international charities would be a better uh, channel for this RCPS money than governments. So there could be ways to structure it to get around the economic gangsters. What's the way forward in development? One of our primary goals in writing this book was to bring more rigorous evidence to bear on these critical debates 
of global poverty, the causes of global poverty, and the solutions to global poverty. Too often in discussing international development issues, debates really revolve around ideology and rhetoric, and neither side has much in the way of rigorous evidence to back up their claims. And that's why we have such polarized debates in development economics and in foreign aid today. But we think global poverty is actually way too important an issue to be left to ideologues, to be left out there with people debating who have very little evidence in hand. And what we call for in the book is, um, one of our goals is to push development economics towards gathering more rigorous evidence, using medical research as a model. So until the 1940s or 50s, medical research didn't, did not use medical trials, these randomized trials where there's a treatment group that gets a drug and a control group that doesn't, and you can compare the two groups to figure out how effective the drug is. Since then, since that methodology was developed, there have been incredible advances in medicine. Life expectancy around the world has soared. So many medical uh, problems and health problems have been solved because medical research uses this consistent, rigorous methodology, what's called evidence-based medicine. We want evidence-based development economics to take uh, root as well. And in fact, it already is starting to take root following the example of medicine. My co-author and I are part of this movement of development economists. In fact, it's possible to evaluate development programs or anti-poverty programs in much the same way that medical trials are structured. Very often, governments, before they roll out a major national program, will do some piloting of the program in certain areas of the country or certain cities. If those cities that are chosen for the pilot program are randomly chosen, they could serve as a treatment group, and the rest of the country could be a sort of control group. And if we compare how effective the program is in the treatment group versus the control group, we have rigorous evidence about how effective that policy is, just like we would in a medical trial. Similarly, lots of nonprofits and NGOs and charities work on a small scale, or they gradually roll out programs over time. Again, those sort of small-scale programs dotting the landscape could be designed like randomized evaluations, like medical trials. If the beneficiaries are randomly chosen, they can be compared to a control group. Let me give you an illustration of why this is important. I've worked for a number of years in Western Kenya. That's where I started doing my dissertation research and probably spent the most time in the field there. And one of the issues we've been interested in is education. Primary schooling in Kenya has so, faces so many challenges. The schools in rural Western Kenya sometimes don't have roofs. They don't have enough textbooks. The kids come to school undernourished or sick. There's so many things you'd like to do to improve schooling in that setting. And there's so many plausible policies that could make a difference. But what really matters is what works on the ground, not just what is plausible. Together with colleagues, we looked at two different types of interventions in these rural Kenyan schools. One intervention gave out textbooks to these primary schools, textbooks that they lacked. There were very few textbooks in these schools. Kind of seems like a no-brainer. Giving textbooks to schools without textbooks would boost learning and test scores and other forms of academic performance. The second intervention we did was a school health program that dealt with a very common local problem, and that was the problem of intestinal worm infections, like hookworm. They used to be very widespread in the US until the early 20th century. They're still incredibly widespread. So in, in rural Western Kenya, over 90% of kids have these intestinal infections. The good news about them is you can treat them with a pill, essentially for pennies a dose. They're very easy to treat. 
they kill the worms in the kids' bodies and the kids gain energy, they're less anemic, and they could learn more potentially. So both of these seem like no-brainers. The question is which is going to work? That's what we care about. Which is going to work in practice? It turns out one of these interventions worked spectacularly and the other basically did nothing. I'm almost tempted to ask people which they think would be more effective. You guys have read the book already. So it turns out giving out textbooks to these schools did nothing for test scores. The test scores stayed the same, school attendance stayed the same, repetition rates stayed the same. There's a bunch of reasons why that could be the case. One thing that we did is look at these textbooks. Turns out these textbooks, which are the official government textbooks designed by the Ministry of Education in Nairobi, were very much designed for the children of the elite in Nairobi. They were very advanced for the kids in rural areas at a certain grade level. For instance, even in third grade or fourth grade, these textbooks were all written in English. And the kids in rural areas don't speak much English, so they're kind of useless for these kids. There were no effects. The deworming drugs, on the other hand, had a big effect. School absenteeism fell by a quarter, and this program, this health program, is one of the most cost-effective ways of boosting school attendance that anybody has found in poor countries. Both kind of seemed like they might work. Both were no-brainers. You guys are very smart. You already figured it out. Um, but only one of them worked in practice. The good thing about rigorous evaluations is you learn what works and what fails. And failure is great because it teaches us maybe we need to design better textbooks. It also allows us to channel our resources to programs that are having an impact on the ground and not waste them on things that sound good ideologically or sound good uh, based on someone's view of the world but aren't effective in practice. This is just an illustration, but the general idea behind the book is there has to be more rigorous evidence brought to bear on development problems, whether through natural experiments like the parking tickets example or the witch killing study or through these systematic experiments and randomized evaluations. I think one practical takeaway for people in this room interested in development, maybe some of you in the past have given to development charities, uh, NGOs, is ask yourself, are the organizations you're giving money to engaging in rigorous program evaluations? Can they actually tell you uh, what the impact is? Have they done randomized evaluations? Have they done other forms of rigorous impact evaluation? Or are they doing the programs they've done for a long time that they like that seem effective without really having much evidence. I think we should all be empowered to ask the NGOs and the charities we give to what they're doing to really understand what works and what doesn't uh, in development. We tell a bunch of other economics stories in the book, uh, stories in, on Indonesia, on Vietnam, uh, on Chad, on Latin American countries, and um, we really hope you have a chance to look at it. We also have a website where we have a blog and a discussion of other work and ideas and research that speak to these same issues. And it's a very simple website, economicgangsters.com. Uh, so I hope you have a chance to check out the website and check out the book. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Uh, we want to remind you, Sasan Scott, can't hear it. <laughs> want to remind you, uh, you guys are all invited to our reception afterward. Uh, well, you will have a chance to speak with Edward Miguel further. Uh, we will now begin our Q&A portion of our uh, lecture tonight. We want to remind you that this is being recorded for podcast, so all questions must be um, spoken into the microphone. And uh, please state your name before your question. And also at this time, our buckets, our donation buckets will be going out. So we do appreciate any and all support. Do we have questions? Mr. Miguel, we have a question in the front. 
Uh, thank you for a fantastic uh, talk. Thank you. My name is Todd, and I was curious, what roles have you found do religion and access to natural resources play in the proliferation of economic gangsterism? It's a good question. There are certain religious groups, for sure, who, you know, in their mission statement or on their online websites, claim to have certain religious goals. But day to day, they kind of look like economic gangsters. Uh, so, you know, there were Al Qaeda units in uh, Al Qaeda operatives in Sierra Leone during the Civil War there, uh, dealing in diamonds and arms, who look a lot like economic gangsters, even if they see, they claim to have these other other goals. There's a an interesting religious movement in Kenya called Mungiki, and it's a Kikuyu-based, uh, Kikuyu ethnic group movement that wants its followers to return to the traditional religion of the Kikuyus and reject Christianity and Islam, these foreign uh, religions, and that's their stated goal. But again, day to day they engage in extortion and racketeering, and they're an organized crime unit. So uh, the relationship between religious extremists and economic gangsters is often a very cozy one, and I think that's true for political revolutionaries from FARC guerrillas in Colombia who are drug dealers as, as well as, as, you know, apparently being revolutionary. So you've raised a good question. There, there's a close tie there. And, you know, the issue of natural resources ties into that as well in the sense that uh, when there are lootable resources, whether it's drugs, whether it's the Taliban selling opium in Afghanistan or uh, uh, religious or political movements selling diamonds in Sierra Leone, uh, that relationship exists. So um, these are economic gangsters in some sort of clerical disguise, I guess, sometimes. We have a question up front here. Yes, my name is Ka Catherine. Uh, how do the, these loans from one person to the other work, these small loans to help people start mm. businesses? Microfinance? Yes. Yeah, so the idea behind microfinance is that there are plenty of good business projects in developing countries, but people lack the capital to carry out their dreams and start their businesses. Um, it's been an incredibly successful program in terms of fundraising, and some of the impact evaluations have shown positive effects, others a bit less so. So I would say in the academic literature, the view is less 100% glowing than it is in the popular discourse, but there's still a lot of support for, for this. There's some interesting research going on using this kind of methodology I described to figure out how best to structure microfinance organizations. Are there ways to design the group lending or the lending period or the repayment period, all these things, to make it more effective? So it's actually been one of the areas in development where there's been the most experimentation and learning. And in that sense, it's a very exciting, exciting area. So there's a lot of promise there. Mr. Miguel, we have a question in the far back, midsection. How are you? My name is Nancy, and, and, I'm, and I'm Kenyan, one of okay. the places where you spend a long time. Um, when you are asking, when you were talking about the chicken and the egg when it comes to Kenya, where the corruption came from, yeah. you know, my view perpetuated by the colonial government to help in the divide and rule, yeah. definitely perpetuated by when we got independence, where we have a situation now where we have the Kikuyus who are the majority, who as kind of a gift of a gift to when they helped fight for independence were settled, let's say, in Western Kenya. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with the just-ended elections in Kenya, you have a situation where central Kenya still developed a lot of 
problems didn't happen there, but you also have now the Western Kenya, part of Kenya, a lot of problems. And yeah. now what's going to happen in the next election, we'll have some parts of Kenya go out much ahead than, let's say, some, some of the other parts like Western Kenya. So what do we do to prevent that from happening? Because we already have these economic disparities which have been perpetuated by the corruption, the violence, and it's going to happen again in the next general election. Yeah. So you raise a lot of issues there. I think the point on the colonial legacy is incredibly important. We're focusing on issues of corruption and violence today and their reality today. We haven't addressed, and I haven't, I mean, we discussed it a bit in the book. I didn't talk about it tonight. Where does it come from? If you look at patterns of governance in Kenya in the 40s and 50s, there was so much violence and corruption perpetrated by the British, uh, and a lot of that continued into the post-colonial period, for sure. Divide and rule politics was a staple of British colonial policy, allowed them to rule vast territories. If you turn people against each other, they can't you know, unite to fight you. So, you're putting your finger on key things. In terms of this issue of regional favoritism and what's going to happen if there's a Kikuyu president rather than a Luo president in Kenya, who's going to win, who's going to get to eat in the next five years, as people would say in Kenya? Um, I think you only really need to look even to Kenya's neighbor in Tanzania for a country that, while imperfect, has actually done a lot better job than Kenya dealing with these issues. It's not an impossible issue to deal with. So Tanzania's presidents over the past, since independence have alternated. Tanzania has a lot of Christians and Muslims. That's a, a salient political issue there. They've alternated the presidency between Christians and Muslims in Kenya, in Tanzania. There's been an effort to try to get all groups involved in government to let all groups feel like they have some voice and representation. And of course, the, the founder of Tanzania, Julius Nyerere, made it his mission to try to build a Tanzanian identity to downplay all the tribal differences and I think we could say fairly in Kenya, politicians have been very busy exploiting those differences. So I think there's a way forward. There are examples even within Africa, within East Africa, of countries that have different sorts of policies. So it's not too late for Kenya, I hope. Mr. Miguel, we have a question to your right. Oops. Uh, your presentation is very excited, and I have uh, done some work in uh, not much, not like you, in Africa. Uh, but I wanted to... Um, to ask your opinion about Paul Collier's The Bottom Billion. Mm -hmm. And uh, he considers quite a few other variables mm -hmm. in how the, the, the countries will develop or not. Yeah. Uh, both the attitude of the NGOs, mm -hmm. uh, the, the wealth, the natural wealth of the land, yeah. and so on. You know, diamonds, oil, all that thing. Yeah, that's right. We see eye to eye with Paul on some issues, and we emphasize different things also in certain ways. Uh, in one sense, we have a narrower focus. And we, um, Paul's book is, is very exciting to read. He draws on a lot of evidence from a lot of different areas. What we are hoping to do is pick a couple of issues that we think are very, really central, very core issues, and go as deeply as we can into them here. And those are corruption and violence. Some of the issues we talk about with violence are similar to, to, to his points. In fact, he cites some of our work in his book. Um, in terms of natural resources, I discussed some of the, the issues before about the role they play in violence. And uh, you know, we're, we're fans of Paul's book, so uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, but we have a different uh, different emphasis, let's say. Yeah. Quick question, far back, midsection. 
just have one comment because the description of you gave from the school in Kenya match exactly the description I worked in South Bay. My name is Gabi. Uh, no textbook, a hole in the back wall. My, a lot of my students were hungry coming to school. Where was that school? Sorry, I didn't hear. In the LA area, South Bay. Oh, okay. So it matches exactly the US mm -hmm. description. Plus the textbook were not appropriate to the, for the students yeah. as well. Yeah. And, but my question was more on Mocos in Colombia because yeah. he was not part of the establishment. So does it perhaps take people who are not part mm -hmm. of the corruption network to actually do the change? That's a fascinating point. I mean, one thing about Mocus, I think he's exceptional in many ways. He was exceptional because he was an outsider. He also was incredibly gifted at symbolism. Uh, you know, this mime intervention sounds crazy, but when you get, it's a very public act. What he did is very publicly state, look, things are going to change. Uh, and he signaled that to people. So he was creative, he was an outsider, he was eccentric. And, you know, he tried lots of crazy things, some of whom didn't work, but some of which did. So. Uh, I think it's hard to predict which ideas will work. He was someone you could think of as a social entrepreneur, someone who understands their societies and knows which buttons to push to enact change. In terms of your first point about U.S. poverty, a lot of the methods we describe in terms of rigorous program evaluation can very well be applied to study U.S. anti-poverty programs. And that is going on as well. Colleagues of mine at Berkeley and of Ray's at Columbia and other uh, economists are now actively engaged in applying these same methods to those problems. There have been uh, studies on education in the U.S. There have been studies on public housing in the U.S. So it's a tool that can be used to accumulate knowledge in other spheres, not just in development. Hi, we have a question midsection once again. Hi, my name is Fred, and I just wanted to thank you, Professor, for um, your lecture tonight. It's very engaging. Thank you. Um, I wanted to uh, just bring you back to a thought that you brought up with relation to culture and uh, women and the cyclical sort of environment that they're in um, that's just holding uh, development back in lots of parts of Africa. Um, and I'm just wondering, aside from this micro-lending, what sorts of things do you think that development practitioners on the ground in Africa can do to empower women? To empower women? Right. There's really a lot that can be done. And, and in fact, um, we could stay here all night discussing promising interventions that I'd love to evaluate and love to get more data on. Microfinance is, is part of it. There have been efforts at education for girls, seeing that as really a key to social change. Uh, that's clearly a big part of it. In terms of this particular issue, you talked about the cyclicality and sort of how in economic downturns there's this violence against women, in particular elderly women. There's some very promising studies going on right now in providing agricultural insurance for poor farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, in India, uh, where the insurance payout is indexed to rainfall. So very closely linked to the kind of ideas we're talking about here. Unfortunately, in rural Africa, say, formal financial institutions, banks, insurance companies are, are pretty much absent. Uh, so there are some public programs that are being, uh, being tested, and um, we're still waiting to see the results. So there are promising interventions in the works, but no one has found the silver bullet, that's for sure. Mr. Miguel, question to your right, to the back here. Thank you. When I bought your book, I thought... Thank I was, you. I was... <laughs> I'll sign it. I, I thought I was buying your book by Wall Street. <laughs> I was pleasantly... People are confused by the title these days, the last few weeks. <laughs> we're, not, we're not unhappy about that. <laughs> Two components. First of all, 
the methodology of your work, does it make you a behavioral eco economist? <laughs> Secondly, you're trying to find cause and effect at micro level, but we have examples of at micro level, for macro level, for example, East Germany and West Germany. Their behavior during, I don't know, for 30 odd years, maybe longer, produced two different societies, yeah. with two different, North and South Korea. Sure, we may find out about the same that people. sooner than we hope, yeah. That so yeah. have, has there been any work done on those, at that kind of level, or are you planning to, because essentially they're the same population, but they're ruled by different methodology. Yeah, so very good point. Um, okay, first, am I a behavioral economist? Uh, my co-author and I use tools from behavioral economics. I don't know if we'd call ourselves behavioral economists. It isn't the primary focus. Our primary focus isn't the integration of psychology into economics, but we're very happy to use those tools to, 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 to use psychology or sociological or cultural explanations, as you can see, to study problems. We see ourselves really as development economists first. We're very open to those tools. And in fact, Berkeley, where I uh, teach, is really one of the hotbeds of behavioral economics, and, and I'm a big fan of that work. In terms of the macro level, understanding cause and effect at the macro level, there the kinds of experiments, the systematic experiments, like the medical trials I talked about, will be harder to carry out. And instead, we'll have to rely on things like natural experiments. So the rainfall, you know, the drought and civil war study in Africa, well, that's a macro level study because we're looking across different countries and, and looking at the society-wide phenomenon. We're using a natural experiment, the fluctuations in rainfall. You raised a very good point about East and West Germany, a population divided. And here in the Goethe Institute, maybe that's a you know, very good example to think about. There have been a number of economists looking at the legacies of that division. So it turns out today, those raised in Western Germany and Eastern Germany have sharply different views on social policy, on redistribution, on uh, inequality. In all those dimensions, people raised in the communist East seem more egalitarian than those raised in the West. So there can be persistent legacies of political and economic systems for decades. Uh, and uh, natural experiments would be the way to get at them at the macro level. Mr. Miguel, question to your left. Just to let you know this will be the last question of the night. You, everyone will have an opportunity for additional questions for our guests at the reception. And just a reminder, Skylight Books will be selling Mr. Miguel's books, Economic Gangsters. Uh, it's uh, at the reception area. We highly recommend it. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Mike. Um, thank you again. Um, I know you kind of touched on the idea of colleagues of yours trying to apply your theories to um, things within the United States, and that was kind of going to be my question. Um, you seem to focus a lot on underdeveloped countries, yeah. but when you look at more highly developed countries, you know, such as the United States and Western European countries, um, who do you see, if anyone, as being the economic gangsters? I suppose it would be more on the corruption level and yeah. not with the violence in more developed countries? And maybe like, would you apply it to the, like the subprime crisis that we were kind of just seeing in this country and maybe look at those companies as economic gangsters? There certainly is corruption in the United States. There have been a lot of corruption scandals these past few years. One difference maybe between corruption scandals in the US and in some poor countries, highly corrupt countries is, some people are getting caught at least. The court system is, is investigating people, putting some people in prison, fining them. 
et cetera. You raise the issue of Wall Street. You know, were there economic gangsters on Wall Street? Uh, we do have a, a political system in this country where, where you can make campaign contributions to particular parties or lawmakers where you can lobby them, where former lawmakers serve on corporate boards and whatnot. And I think there's a fear among maybe many people in this room that there is some sort of quid pro quo in those relationships. Um, we certainly uh, aren't making the, the point that what happened on Wall Street now is due to economic gangsters, but our political system opens up the possibility through lobbying, campaign contributions, and whatnot, that certain groups could get influence and shape public policy to their own benefit, to the detriment of the rest of society. And some have said, well, maybe the financial deregulation we saw over the past decade or so fits the bill. Uh, we don't talk about it in the book, but I think it's a natural question to ask. Okay, we'd like to thank you folks for coming out to Sokolo. Uh, please join us at our reception.